Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to finally meet you because this is how we meet each other nowadays. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization and what you're passionate about? Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, excited to be here. Yeah, so my name is Dave Roselli. Um, I'm currently uh, an innovation catalyst where I work for Fortive Corporation. We're an industrial uh, manufacturing company, and my team is a part of the Growth Accelerator, so our mission is to help drive organic growth inside of the company. Um, and more broadly, my passion area is, is the area of innovation, and particularly around the early stage part of the innovation process. Very cool. I love corporate innovators. You guys are great. The question is, what does innovation mean to your company? Because I mean, it means different things to different people, right? What does it mean to you? So we actually have a really specific definition of it because our mandate is to scale our, our interpretation of innovation of the whole company. So we actually have a codified set of processes that we um, have formed into a bit of like a curriculum that we run teams through. And so our goal is to both uh, help companies get to outcome with, with whatever their kind of innovation metrics are, whatever those KPIs are defined, and then as well as build capability. And so we're also, we have a champions program where we teach people how to be a catalyst. That's one of our primary roles that we've called uh, within the company. And um, so that they, they understand some of the deeper techniques to better run the innovation processes. Um, that said, it is an evolving definition. I think all of us are kind of curious about this definition. I mean, that's one of my curiosities as well, is how do, how do you get a really systematized definition of this term? Exactly. So was it like that when you first started or did you did you start the process or I mean, no, yeah, no. tell, so tell me was, about how, how you got to this yeah. point. And full disclosure, I'm still I just joined this team relatively recently, but I've kind of been in this innovation management space for last five years or so. So um, a part of what attracted me to the company was the, this kind of deeper process. Um, so they, so Fortive is a spinoff spin of um, Donaher. Donaher is in the manufacturing space. They have something called Donaher Business Systems, which was a strategic, um, it's basically a strategic set of tools to really help do problem solving at, at, at complex levels. Um, when they, once Fortive was launched, we wanted to better understand um, innovation at a more systematic level, and they wanted to launch a whole toolkit around early stage innovation. Um, so about five years ago, they pioneered this, this, this set of tools, and now it's gone through a couple iterations. Um, so we have, um, now we're working with both hardware and software companies, um, where we're really we're at the point now we're actually uh, able to install um, these early stage innovation arms within inside of the operating companies that are within our under our umbrella. So we're kind of at the next stage in where we're going in terms of wanting to scale it because we've been able to see some really great success um, just in the first few years of even getting these uh, operated and on the ground. Very cool. So one of the biggest problems with sort of driving innovation through an organization is sort of backlash right like how do you get people to 
to see things differently yeah. because everyone's so focused on their day-to-day -day work uh it's really difficult to get them to sort of think think outside yeah. of the box a little bit how, how do you do that i mean what, what yeah, no, how does it instantiate itself yeah, that's one of the hard, I think that's one of the tricks here. Well, so I think what I appreciate so much about the way things are set up here is that um, we we really work with leadership to really get kind of a bigger vision for like, what what is this thing? We're talking about innovation. Is it just going to be something that's operating off in the corner from some team that doesn't really know the broader strategic goals of the organization? So there's actually a lot of work around alignment to be able to figure out where, where are we all going and how does this department of its marketing actually connect with product that's connecting with engineering? How do we um, align? And so we have a lot of, a lot of work that we're doing is, you know, standardizing terminology. It sounds silly, but it's just, how do we make sure everyone's talking about the same thing in the right language and has the right expectation of the outcome of it? What is it interconnected to? So we create a lot of, uh, there's a lot of meeting space uh, with at the leadership level to really make sure there's, um, a shared set of understandings around how are we using these tools? What's what's the terminology? And then really what's the bottom on impact? What are we expecting to get out of this? Um, and a lot of the conversation is really focused on resource allocation. So how do we agree upon that, that we're gonna put money in this and not that and feel agree that this is our experiment, like this is gonna be our hypothesis. So it's a lot of the work that you know pe people far more senior than me have been paving the way at is being able to create that type of strategic conversation. And I think that that's been really something quite exciting to me is, is it's now seeing leaders bought into the, um, the financial considerations that it takes to actually go into an innovation process. And they're not looking at immediate ROI or anything like that, no, no, right? No. I mean, it. yeah. it's like that was the first question. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's enough data that shows you have to, you have to put a timeline to this. It's a three to five year cycle. But what we're trying to explain is that if you simultaneously build capability up, you know, you know, along the way, you're now going to really have a muscle where each year you can now prepare to um, be able to try to at least attack some type of new type of new organic revenue. And that's the goal here for them. So when, it, when you talk about sort of like a successful innovation project or something like that, are you talking about uh, product innovation or yes. process or both? It's product through process, and we're probably less focused on more commercial innovation. Um, so we're wanting to be able to drive product innovation through sustained process innovation. Um, and, and, and that's a lot of the new muscle memory, I think, to unlock for a lot of companies. Uh, I think a lot of companies have been focused a lot on the commercial side that kind of remembering the product side is a new, new skill. And so a lot of the processes we're helping to teach um, are things that I think a lot of the industry is familiar with, but in a bit more of a kind of sequenced way of, you know, do a good market analysis, figuring out your user, their, fr their frictions, and just really having a good strategic understanding before you go into a whole new market. What are we doing here? Why are we there? What's our expected outcome? Um, so I think that's, a, it's kind of a combination of the two. So how do, I'm assuming design thinking is part of the process, right? So at what point do you do you bring in the design thinking? So I think of I think of design thinking kind of like a macro structure that goes across. Like we'll have like a three to four month process of doing like a full cycle, and so I think you have you know the five stages of design thinking at a very high level are kind of organizing our phases, and then um, and then there are, there are also acute moments where I think we'll do design thinking when it when we're really working with a complex problem that is maybe affecting multiple stakeholders. And I find design thinking really helps us like really deconstruct what the problem is and get a look at it objectively 
and then we'll solve it that way. But it really kind of goes between those two altitudes. Right, because you can focus specifically on like the the pro the product in the process, or you can do it at, at the higher level. Exa yeah, but, no, exactly. So, so where do your most of your most of your new product ideas come from? I mean, do they come from everywhere? Do they come from the crowd, or like where do they where does where do they, where do the ideas start? Where does the ideation begin? Yeah, that's like a huge part of the pro process. So we really want a lot of that to come from leadership, and so we have actually leadership drive that. And so the leadership actually figures out ways within their company to really get a feedback loop of ideas. So there's gonna be a whole series of workshops and um, we're working with leaders to do cross-functional workshops um, where they're able to kind of crowdsource ideas internally from their company. Um, and then also wanting to lean on the experts within their org. You know, I think there's between senior leaders, people who've been in the industry 10, 15, 20 years, um, even partners, you know, I think they have so much insight to offer. Uh, what we're challenging, when we're, I act more as a coach, what we're challenging our team is to really think critically about the types of prompts that they want to convene groups on. Like, what are, what's, the, what's the interesting space that you can really, you know, prompt people to think creatively on um, and leverage that convening power as, as one of your assets. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about the company or how it's structured? I mean, do you have individual silos that all work independently or? Um, so yeah, so the Ford of Zop, the way we work, we have about uh, 19 opcos right now. We have three core divisions. Um, so one's more healthcare, one's more hardware, one's more software. Um, and then hardware and software, mostly in more industrial uh, verticals. Um, and then um, each team has its own, each company has its own leadership. Um, so they have their own president and we act as uh, kind of kind of a strategic unit in support of all the different opcos. And each opco then has a way to kind of work with us, work with our team to figure out, you know, what's what are some of their innovation goals. And then we have kind of a toolkit that we work with them on to figure out which is going to be the best fit for their, for their needs. Have you ever had situations where one group has come up with ideas for a different group and stuff like that, like something that's totally out of the box? Yeah, no, there's that a group good or... old quantum physics going on. That <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, because you kind of can't help it. I mean, and a lot of the way we, we operate is we we play in similar markets. Some of our opcos play in similar markets. So there's kind of an almost a literal reason why that would happen. But yeah, there's also something about the creative process where one team in one room can come up with an idea and another team in another room can also somehow hit upon in the same moment. It's pretty pretty neat when that kind of thing happens. Very cool. So, can you tell me a bit about? I'm assuming that it sounds like the the pro the program's very successful. I mean, can you tell us about a like a product that ended up coming through this process as opposed to sort of like the regular design process? Yeah, so it would be it would have been before my time, but um, some of our big um, projects have come through more of our hardware companies, and so they've actually now been able to release um, about six new products. We have one of our companies called Tektronic, and so they're they've been able to actually come up with go through their, their own process. They have their own growth accelerator, um, and a lot of them are kind of specific to that market. They're not maybe the most, it's mostly enterprise hardware technology, um, but they've been able to see uh, great results. And I think the most exciting thing is to see projected revenue that's coming from, from these new products that actually outsize the expectations. Um, so that's always an exciting moment when we get to actually point to like the innovation work uh, driving that type of success. So I think that's allowed them to be able to bring some outside talent into the org, strengthen that department, 
um, and help really add, create culture. I mean, that's one of the most challenging things to do. It's so ambiguous, but it's, it's a material force. And I think that's what they've done quite well. So this particular product that, or these products that have made it through the cycle, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, was there something specific about them that made them yeah, like, yeah. really? Well, I think one of the best strengths of our, our curriculum is we have this whole material called problem worth solving. And it, it just does a very good job um, of really framing up an explicit business problem and then really getting a 360 <clears throat> holistic degree view of the problem from kind of multiple stakeholder views. And I think that product, their success, I think, um, I'd like to think outcompetes the market in terms of that type of analysis. One second, I just need to sit. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and so I think that that's where I would maybe, you know, point to, I think that they've done a very good job of uh, kind of digging into their uh, market research work to really understand the, the pain point. And, their, and they, a lot of this work is very workflow oriented. So they get to go really deep into understanding the way that folks are working, how to understand the job to be done that they're doing in that particular moment and really provide that solution. I, I think that's what a lot of our curriculum does a really good job on is figuring out use case after use case after use case, which is the one that I think will really click. And I think they've been able to do very well on that front in, that, in their market. It sounds like they've been given the space to actually do that. Because a lot of times there's yes. there's such a rush to get to return right but it sounds like it sounds like you're 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 a lot more patient with it is that it was that a yeah no statement? i think that's a testimony to my boss and and the team you know uh my boss heather andrus has been working on this for a long time and that's a big big kind of mantra that she pushes is they need they need space because i mean i think when we step back and we look at the challenge of innovation innovation is really trying to do two things at the same time it's being very analytical and linear about a market problem today but you also have to kind of tap into that right part of your brain that's a lot more irrational not irrational just not as linear not more no, linear. irrational is good irrational is good as far as i'm concerned <laughs> No, and that's my fun. That's where I came from. I come from more of the design part. I, I, I was trained in architecture and I love that piece of the puzzle. And so um, kind of linking these together, I think it's been a real fascinating challenge, of, you know, for, for a while now in the industry. And I think something we see is that people do need to have some freedom in their time, almost at, even at moments, almost dedicated unstructured time to be able to get that kind of brain flow going to really be able to think differently. Yeah, no, I like the idea of dedicated instruction time. I didn't even know if Google's still doing their 20%, but I think it also needs some, it, you need some to provide some structure within that structured time, right? You can't just say, here, yeah. you have time to sit around and think new things, you know, give them a, a you know, a, an objective exactly. like during that, that period. Yeah. I think, and that's a huge opportunity that I think the corporate innovation world has is working with more of the raw design talent is that we're providing the structure. We don't almost get as much anymore to do the raw create, creative building, which can be a little bit of a sacrifice in the work. But what I think is inspiring is to be able to create that um, container for creatives to play in. And one of the most successful things I see is a really great design brief, a design brief that knows how to activate creativity, but also puts in the right amount of constraints that boxes people in in the right way. And so now you can bridge some of your business objectives, maybe your technology constraints and get really crystal clear than a user. I think designers love that and, and can really start that kind of creative ideation um, within, that, within that context. Fantastic. So 
do you think the pro- has the process lifted anything from the startup world, like MVPs or anything like that? Is there anything that's out there? This entrepreneurial side of things have been pulled into this process. Yeah, yeah. So um, yes, we're I think we're very much influenced from the startup world, um, and so we we our our goal is to get new products to outcome. So what that entails is having a business model. Um, sometimes there'll be more in-house units and sometimes they will become independent startups. I think regardless, we all kind of operate on an MVP logic of what's the, you know, the most amount of value in the most lean way we can develop this product. And even if it is going to go in-house, I think we, we, we believe those principles still are, are very relevant. Um, and then we do still hold kind of an experimentational le- experiments lens once we really have a clear point of view and we're sort of go to market phase. So what the product's value proposition is, is learning from the market, really understanding which is going to be its best kind of organizational structure. So I think that keeps us on our toes. Um, I come from the more venture design space. Um, so I was working with uh, BCG Digital Ventures before, and we, our mission was more more creating startups. Um, so it wasn't going to always just be an in-house unit. And I, so I, th- I see the pedagogy kind of overlapping in terms of the way you go kind of zero to one startup logic, but then also being able to leverage some corporate assets to kind of mitigate some of the risk. I think that's when both worlds can work quite well together and, and being able to create something new. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess this is something I ask of everyone who's in the innovation space is that what what's your background like? How did you get into it? Because everybody I know who's in the innovation space has come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some have come from finance, some have come from marketing, some have come from sales. Some have come, There's just so many different backgrounds. How, how did you get it? It sounded like you mentioned design, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm like the like the cliche. I, I'm like one of the most meandering backgrounds you can find. Like have to find the through line. You know, it's amazing I was even get a job at first because it took a little convincing. No, I, so I came in from architecture. I, I you know, when I was younger, I, I really fell for the design piece of the architecture curriculum. I'm not sure how exposed you've been to architecture, but there's a whole kind of studio mentality. It's a little bit of tapping into your inner crazy artist and that's you exactly what, what I would have done. If I didn't get into tech, I would have gone into architecture. In fact, I, was, I remember when I was in high school and I had a like a rudimentary drafting class in yeah. grade 10. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is so cool. Like I'm balancing these two things. Which one of these things should I go into? I should now I think to myself, I should have gone into architecture. But hey, you know, it is what it is, right? <laughs> no, though, I really I mean, I I probably because I'm slightly biased, but I, I personally see it's an overlap. And there's a lot of things that I've learned in architecture that I think help me so much now in software, working so much more building product. Um, in terms of the, there's a very similar process of having to be schematic, you know, come up with a new idea, bring in the constraints, get agreement on from a business side, and then you see it built and then you have to watch it getting built. And I, so I, I find a lot of inspiration in that. And I think for me, what I loved in, in the architectural world was the translation piece. So once you had your vision, how do you then tell another discipline, like what your vision is? And it's kind of game of telephone. And I see the game, same game in tech where it's you're still translating creative ideas to engineers. Um, and so, exactly. you know, there's something similar. And, and the curiosity I have is that what I, in architecture, we have a visual language that's pretty established and floor plans, blueprints. And it, I, in tech, it seems like the, that visual language is still kind of being figured out. And, you know, we have, you know, and there's interesting ways of communicating and some are in very prose form, some are a little more diagrammatic. But I, I really enjoy that piece is, is getting to think of that translation side. 
Um, so that was, I mean, to, to answer your first question, that was a big part of my path was um, really going down the creative realm, like, like the whole visual communication style of things. But I've always had a, a bit of a business side of me. And I think that was kind of where I hit a little bit of a wall in the architectural world. Um, I remember once bringing up business in class and I got my hand slapped and that's not something you talked about. Seriously? Wow. <laughs> it's like impurifying the, the discipline. And I, I can understand where they're coming from. It's, it could be, it, they can treat it really like an art art form. And that can almost feel like it, it adulterates the, the, the purity of the, the, the discipline. But I come from a more practical family that was like, oh, that's all well and great, but what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do with it? So, um, but so I, I actually, so that, that made me pivot a little bit and kind of went through a little bit of a questioning of where I wanted to go next. And I landed in uh, social science. I felt like I wanted more research uh, exposure. And then, um, and then, so I actually did that in, in London. I studied in uh, abroad uh, for grad school, um, which was just helpful to get more of a global context. I think that was more of the soft skill piece of things that really helped shape me. And then I came back and, and then I had the opportunity more to tap into this like business research architecture side. I worked in real estate um, and did a lot of, um, I got to work with people and doing design. And I think that was the insight for me is the collaboration piece of, of getting to really work with people, listen to their pain points. It was all this language around tech that tech figured out. I didn't have it in architecture, but I realized that was the style I wanted to work. So I wanted to work with people. And that was not very common in architecture. You don't really work with your end audience very much in your process. Um, and so I finally made a break. I kind of thought, you know, I, th I knew I needed to go get licensed if I was going to be an architect. And it was just a little, it just wasn't, it wasn't speaking to me anymore. The industry, I still love the field. I still love some of my closest friends are in architecture. But I went to, I went down the path of um, studying, I got a business uh, degree, an MBA out of an art school up in San Francisco. And they, it was a focus on design strategy and strategic foresight. And it was really the best choice I ever made. Um, and because then it gave me a new, new toolkit, gave me all these different frameworks. It reminded me a lot of how architects think of like, di you know, abstractly dissecting things and getting these ways of talking about it. And what I loved about that toolkit was also giving me the lens to talk about the future. Um, so a lot of my professors there were futurists. And that was just like, for me, a game changer that like put things on a whole new map that um, I just didn't get in, in the architecture field. And then yeah, I just well, that's a, well, so a couple of things there. I mean, so you're saying that I can't be Howard Work if I become an architect? <laughs> I can't just tell everybody, right? oh this God, is how Howard it should be, Work. damn it. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Burn it to the ground if not, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah. So you, so it sounds as if though you're saying that you don't really need to listen to your customers, or there's not a lot of customer interaction when it comes to architecture. Is that true? So you just no, you just I disagree. Sort of with it. I kind of rebelled against that. So I did yeah. listen to my customers, but the field and they were like they were shocked. Oh my god, you're an artist. You have to come up with your thing, right? Is that what I mean, yeah, they just I don't know. It's like all gut feeling oriented there, and. I don't even think it's cracked like and you know i'm speaking boldly about a whole profession but um it's not it's not established procedure and honestly i think mm. it's because there's so much architects have to worry about with liability that you go you get the industry pulls you to engineering and you have to out engineer the engineer and so many of these people are artists so to add business yep. in the mix it's just 
it's too much. It's like that's interesting. Program. I never I never thought of that because if you think about it, they're really constrained, kind of like banks are constrained by regulation. Architects are yeah. constrained by engineering and regulation and, and zoning and all sorts of rules, and and it really restricts what they're what they can do, what they can do. Oh, completely, and I think that's partly why we've seen probably a little less innovation there. And I think I've been inspired in a way how tech embraces constraints. I think tech has a different set of constraints, but I mean, the fun of working in software, it's quite a malleable form. You know, you can always just do another release or you can fix things. once you <laughs> That's right. It's why it's just different. You know, you can't, you can't do the same type of release structure with buildings. Um, and I, so I think software, in my opinion, has been an opportunity to innovate on also the way people work. And that's been something inspiring is looking even at the business procedures and processes um, because that's been another, that's another challenge of a lot of more analog industries is the workload. You're working 80, 90 hours weeks with not the biggest payoff. Um, and that, that, that wears on you, you know, year and year. Um, and I think tech's been able to crack that a little bit. It's interesting. You should, I think you should take some of this, maybe you should do a sideline back in architecture because there's, they need, they need disruption big time, yeah, right? I mean, the, the housing, the housing business, I mean, like for yeah. example, what you've got behind you, the habitat, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're never, we've never seen, we haven't seen anything like that. And if you think yeah. about it, there's so much innovation that could happen in the housing space and it's just not, it's just not happening. And even within the restrictions of it, they, they definitely need more innovation, but. Maybe that's, you could... <laughs> that's like my pet you know, dream project one day, once I can figure yeah. out. But the funny thing is, just, I think there's kind of no real corporate presence. I mean, that's kind of an off the hand comment, but like, you know, having worked when I was in BCG, we, we were very organized on the different sectors we operated in. And so you meet big people in retail, you meet big people in manufacturing or energy or finance. There's really never an architecture or housing industry that's like this big right. that can go do all this innovation on it. So um, it's been funny. I've been wondering when I'm going to come upon it. I'm actually working with a facility uh, software company right now, facility management software. And that's been pretty neat getting to see, mm. just, you know, the management of the built side. It's not as much the construction part, um, but I have, I have a long list of ideas that I would love to figure out how to tinker on within housing. Cause yeah, I think there's from the supply chain piece, from the, you know, design process, from just making it a nice user experience. I think there's a huge piece. Actually, one of my first real projects, I had a little side business or business in my in my twenties, was um, trying to hack the permit process. Um, we, my friend and I, we just figured out an efficiency to make you know the building permit process go faster, and it just unlocked all this value because so many people just abhor working with the local government. So it feels like there's just so many opportunities yep. to streamline processes in, in this industry. I'm yep. still figuring out when I can carve time out to do that. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like housing is definitely something that's near to me. And like, I wish we could do something about it because I mean, I live in Silicon Valley. I don't know where you, where you are you in San Francisco? Are you in? No, I was, yeah. Six? So I was there for a few years and then I've been in LA. Um, yeah. For, but so. even, even in LA, I mean, California housing is ridiculous, right? No, I it's mean, nuts. it's like, I, <laughs> and we don't, it doesn't need to be that way, but it anyway, doesn't need we'll, to be we'll that figure, way. We'll it's figure not, it out. I think it's a failure of imagination. I get to spend some time in South Korea for my, you know, my last job and just to see how they handle the housing crisis, it's, they handle it. They just break all the rule, you know, they break the rules of American urban, like orthodoxy of, you know, having yep. many skyscrapers in your town or resetting the idea that not everyone's going to have a single family house. Um, yep. It's hard, you know, but when it comes to the bigger challenges of people being able to have shelter, um, 
I think, yeah, I think we just have to get pretty radical in, in rethinking stuff. And also I think we need better tools. It's a pretty yeah. antiquated field still. Yeah. In, in well, personally, I like those. Have you seen those tube homes that they have in, at, uh, in uh, Hong Kong where they've shoved these tube homes in between skyscrapers? Oh, wow. They're really they're cool. Like, <laughs> they're, like, they're, like, they're like pipes. Wow. They're like big pipes. And they just like push them in in between the skyscrapers and they can yeah. stack them on top of each other. And then you like, I don't know how you get up to it, but it's it's basically a li enough, enough living quarters for one person. And I'm like, wow, why can't we do something like that? I mean, we're supposed to be so innovative, but... Oh, well, we're, we're spoiled. We almost have too much land. We've almost, we didn't ever have that. Yeah, I guess that is the problem. Country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, yeah. I mean, I've heard someone speculate about that, is that in the U.S. and in Canada, we've had so much zoning to work with, we never really had to worry about. We could always just, you know, take over a farm or go into the, yeah. the, the forest and just yeah. continue to build. Yeah. But you have this limited space that we're in. I mean, the Bay Area is tiny and, you know, the L.A. Basin's not that big either. So, <laughs> you know, you don't want to be too far away. Yeah, I think zoning is going to be the big shift. And then when zoning yeah. can shift, we'll see it. But we'll see. I'm, so I'm intrigued by it. But it does seem like there's got to be a political shift as well. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. Definitely. So tell me about yeah, I, about your foresight work. I mean, how did that open things that. up for you? Because, I mean, I've yeah. been doing that for forever. But uh, tell me about it. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's an area that um, I love. I, it was, it's kind of been a pleasant discovery, you know, on this path, <laughs> this meandering path. And um, and so it's funny enough. I was actually it was a totally incidental thing. I went to CCA to study um, civic innovation, trying to figure out bringing some of the innovation to part of the housing process and all that. But there were, um, they, they, they didn't have enough students, so they shuffled me into another program, and it was called Strategic Foresight. Hadn't heard of it, but got the lowdown. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty interesting, a coherent way of studying the future. Let me, let me go try this. And it just got my mind blown every day in class because it was there's a super well-developed set of tools from the 40s that have just kind of found their way, maybe a little bit more hidden. Um, but have been guiding and influencing long-term thinking for a long time. Um, and for me, it just was like almost this missing toolkit I've been wanting to have that like was this puzzle piece. And because I love that kind of thinking in architecture, but lacked the rig rigor, you know, to really do it properly. Um, and we took it from a business lens, you know, so we were thinking a little bit more around where's the market going. Um, but it allowed us to ask so much bigger, so many bigger questions and also understand more of what's the market's role in solving so many of these big questions we see in society. And it felt like we were asking, we could be almost a little idealistic without feeling we were being so abstract. It was impractical. It was for me, a very nice balance to, to get to, you know, have that type of thinking. Um, so I, I've been perpetually curious of how to figure out where to, you know, get to introduce that type of toolkit at work. Um, you know, some successful opportunities, some less, but I was actually able to do quite a bit in my last job. We called it. Well, yeah, um, I mean, the thing about strategic foresight is it's so cool and it it's works so cool. and, it's, and it's excellent. And when you when you talk about it to people, they're great. It's great. But then they're like, how do you connect with what you're creating here to what we're doing today? It's sort of like you, yeah. you've got to you got to give them that path because yeah, I mean, I work with the IFTF, so the Institute for yeah, the Future, yeah, work, and they're I all work. about you know, 10 year scenarios yeah. and they do 10 year scenarios and then you present, they present to business and business is like, this is nice, but you know, how do we get there? So, exactly. you know, that, that path is, I think a key to communicate that path as well. 
Well, so in, the, in one of the tools we use is called backcasting to help be able to tell that story, which I know I'm sure you're familiar with it. But I think it's a really great tool because it's actually a very complex tool cognitively if you when you break it down. But it makes so much sense that it, it's so easy to explain. You can teach you know a group of high schoolers what the idea is, and they're going to get it. And um, and so I think it's it's been a really fascinating kind of learning experience just about the brain and how. The brain is so sensitive to framing. And when you frame things in the right way, you get such different responses. Um, Absolutely. So it, and, and I've worked with IFTF, actually. I got to work with um, Jake Dunnigan was one of my professors. And so oh, Jake. I know Jake. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great so <Jake>. guy. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he had a huge impact on my uh, education and, and training. And so, and he's, he, so we've actually worked together with IFT, IFTF on a similar type of project. My, my curiosity is how can you bring innovation into the scenario development process? So if we are speculating 10, 20, 30 year futures, and we come upon a big insight, we can anticipate a big behavior change. Can you use that as a prompt to, to ideate on and then start to, you know, just do some speculative design a little bit and at least just get the gears turning. Um, and so that's, that was a fun project. I, we got to work on a, a rethinking on an energy campaign, which was which was great, transitioning more into a cleaner energy. And it just gave people so much more permission. Hmm. To think no, I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge, uh, <laughs> I'm hugely into foresight. And I love hearing about it being actually used in organizations. I mean, I, I, I just send you something as well. There's They've got this new, uh, organ, this new social network that IFTF has created. I think it's called, something optimist or something like that and oh, uh, it's like a, um, yeah have I know, you, I know have you joined that because i just joined that the other day <laughs> i didn't join it yet i should though <laughs> i i need to get back in the loop yeah they got jane mcgonigal doing the oh, yeah, doing a lot of work on it so i love awesome. her she's she's great <laughs> sorry we're really? geeking out over futurism here i know this is what <laughs> happens that's why i have to avoid talking about it too much around my futurist friends we just take over because they're like oh there he goes again talking about the future Anyway, speaking of the future, it is time to talk about uh, the year 2032. So it's 10 years from now. It's uh, 2032. What's the world going to be like in, in 10 years? Where do you think we're going to be? You know, I, I'll say um, it's the hardest question, right? I, I think <laughs> I do kind of like the archetypal futures model um, where you think in four. So you have your like total doomsday collapse. You have a kind of yeah, yeah. same old, same old. I, and I think of all the four that I've heard. The one I kind of zoom in the most is the discipline feature, where mm. human beings kind of do something about this, the, the, the changes they're seeing in the world and, and they react to them. Um, so based on that, that kind of lens, you know, I'll, I'll be a little more optimistic and think that we've actually saw, we've gotten to take a hand in solving some of these bigger issues. Um, I think the biggest one to me is going to be around energy and, uh, energy and then i think we might just get kind of a new so i'm interested in some urban planning movement so I'm, i'd be very curious in the next 10 years how we'll see new manifestations of kind of living like urban urban suburban dwellings kind of really show up and i think it's going to have to account for a lot more around environmental considerations so things like fires and floods and energy consumption um, but i think that's going to be a big dramatic shift and i think we're going to have to I think we'll have some kind of political dealing with fossil fuels. And I just think there's going to be a coming moment sooner than later. So that's where my, my mentality is 10 years away. We've, we've somehow, somehow transcended that to a degree. It's, I don't think we'll ever fully have done it, but I think we'll be operating more 
in a renewable system. And I'm curious, that's where I then imagine just kind of system wide effects. Like what could that really look like? And, yeah. and I, I think it's a lot more disciplined behavior. I think there's a lot of the West is going to have to sh- change to a degree. Well, do you think we're, we're actually going to start being more disciplined? Like human I, beings I, are going to be realizing. Gonna, yeah. I think we're all still learning. Like how do you create behavior change? The facts that always fascinate me going into the futures work was just looking at really simple ones around like population change, where in like 1920, we had 2 billion people, 2020, we have about eight. We're about to gain another two billion. And I, I say it more as like, you know, and we're also now interconnected at a more planetary level. So what precedent do we have of of having systems that manage this many people? I don't think we do. So no. I, I, there's just so many learning curves that we have to go through. And but the prior to the 1920s, they had a very dominant, they had a very consistent set of constraints. So I think we're also having to go through a period of letting go of some older paradigms of how we think through today's problems and then allowing a new paradigm to emerge um, to be able to solve problems. But that sounds very challenging for for us as people. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, well, from my perspective, you know, the the technology is never the problem. It's always the people who are the problem. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's always the people. And it's going to be, I think that's not going to go away. And I think if anything, it's obvious, it's, you know, it's obvious just how you know different people are. I think people have always been different, but now that we have tools where each per each living person can put you know a microphone to their personal view, you know, I yep. think it's getting to see how different we are, and mm-hmm. that's where I think we're an experiment. We're we're all in an experiment. We're like still learning how this all works, coexisting together. Yep. But exactly. I, I am Especially, hopeful that, yeah. Sorry. Well, I, I think a lot of times, if you think about it, we've our evolution's kind of a, we've a, a accelerated our own evolution. Yes. Because yeah. I, I read somewhere the other day that uh, just moving from one room in your house to another room in your house sort of disorients you. That's not a normal human thing because we used mm-hmm. to we grew up in caves where it was just one big open space, and then you were another big open space, and just moving from one room to another is actually disorienting to the sort of like the base human base human brain. And I'm like. Wow, if we if we have trouble with that, can you imagine like right. driving two you know hundred miles an hour in a car or right. or you know being in a skyscraper that's higher taller than a mountain? It's just we've placed ourselves. I mean, we're still kind of like cave people, but we placed ourselves in situations that are not like that, and we're still sort of trying to deal with these things at the same time and think that they're normal when in some cases they're actually very strange to uh, to human yeah. beings so we've evolved and like you said i mean we used to have a tiny little tribe i mean that was uh, as far as what maybe 50 years ago before you know prior to the internet we had tiny little tribes we lived and worked in geographic locations knowing only certain people around us and now we can know everybody everywhere <laughs> and we're still trying to figure out how to yeah, how to I- deal with that totally changing our psyche it's changing like our networks the way we like put identities out in the world it's probably going to change so we have power economic bonds i think the the potential is gigantic and i I think um yeah i don't think it's totally discussed it's not discussed that much i'm actually rereading a book um from from i got exposed to in foresight um future shock by alvin uh, teffler and like i think just the concept is feeling more pertinent than ever that people are like almost going through a sickness with just in terms of the amount of change that we're all dealing with. And we don't have a mental model to anchor against to really make sense of all this change. Um, 
in the, I think the book, you know, makes a really good point of how this experience of change is not a phenomenon that's discussed super well or like really well understood. It's something we all feel it and know it, but it's kind of it's a little harder to I guess replicate in a in a study. Um, but it's something we all know, and I think futurists see this day in and day out, just how hard society has a time of coping with this much change. Yeah, well, if you think about it, there's actually an entire branch of science, change management now, right? Managerial oh. science, which talks about how do you get human beings to change or, or deal with change? Because, I mean, if you ask me, the first thing that we think of when we, when we, hear, when we see change is fear. We're afraid of it. We're like, oh, my God, you know, this is different. This is new. This is not what I'm used to. What am I going to do? And it's just fear and panic. And, and yeah. it's like we somehow have to evolve beyond that because there's so much change happening all the time every day to us that we have to try and take it more in stride and i think part being like the futurist studies actually i think helped that with that basically because it helped codify the understanding that life is change and things change right. all the time so we right. gotta start getting used to it yeah see it as an opportunity and i think funny enough there's a lot of people that kind of our current education system doesn't really know what to do with they're kind of the more yeah. out-of-the-box thinkers I actually think they're the ones who would be who do super well in this kind of context. Like they love the yep. chain, love tracking down all the new signals. And so um, that's a curiosity I have is how do we shift even some of the training models or education models to better identify some of those early indicators of signs in younger people that, okay, you or maybe you're a little different from the more conformed path, but could we help? Could you even help us better understand some of the change uh, dynamics and I even see that at work right now. I mean, I think a big effort we're doing at work is upscaling. We have to, you know, go through change management with thousands of employees. We've had to develop a whole new skill set. And some of the skill set is learning how to be strategic, learning how to identify weak signals, learning how to trust your instincts. That's those are not necessarily skills that have been developed for the last 30, 40 years because of the way the business um, was was architected and incentivized. Exactly. I mean and it's it's always important to realize that you know human beings will only do what they're incentivized to do. So if they're not incentivized to do yeah. that, then they won't do it, right? Yeah. What are you going to spend time doing? That's what I I mean that's probably my most like thing I get most excited about is is reimagining the way we work and could you could you actually identify new ways to incentivize workers in even a more harmonious way where you're able to just even work faster, you're able to work at a more peak um, kind of flow state especially when you're doing real creative work that's very ambiguous. Um, I, I have just a feeling here that there's ways that we could even be working so much more optimized once you really understand each other's goals and you know what everyone's intents are. And I think that's the big challenge of corporate structures is they're not going to be optimized for that ideal. They're going to do the standardization. So it's hard when you're still figuring out what that model is, how to let that grow inside of a very standard structure. I think that's what probably most corporates are going to have to figure out is how can you experiment? How can you try out some type of new model? Yeah, and I think it, it, it cuts across all sorts of things. So it's like there's there's that and there's also education. There's there's mm -hmm. there's so many things that are just stuck in the past and they need to oh. be disrupted. And yes. it's yeah. just we're, we're seeing this sort of clash of you know we need to do things the way they were done before or here's a new way of doing things that are more effective and it's it's all it's all a mishmash which is leading to even more pain and suffering and change because right, these right. things are all clashing against each other yeah the stuff that i get most inspired 
around when I think about those problems does come from education. There is one research group that was really figuring out what are the core skills to train entrepreneurial thinking, even if you're not an entrepreneur, but that type of mindset. And um, the intent was really to demyth the idea that it's only something innate, like you only have, you only, you're born with it or you had it modeled. And they made the argument that it's all around reasoning skills and it's, uh, it's analogical reasoning, abductive reasoning, framing, and I think spatial memory was the, the last. And that if you really focus on the reasoning skills, that's actually going to, especially from an uh, education lens, that and, and allow people to have high ri some risk in their, their ability to test it. Those are the skills that are going to really help people scale. Um, and so I, I get inspired by that. And then I think the point you made earlier about people having time just to like explore <laughs> these types of this type of work. I just read a great article around um, the need for um, what he called imagination studies. And it's the ability to put more rigor behind the idea of imagination and understand like what, what, what is this technique? What's the brain doing here? It's something that we do all the time. It's very, it's a poor neurological function, um, but it's something still misunderstood. And could this be a way that we help solve some of our, our much bigger complex problems that we have in society? Yeah, we need to spend more time imagining and not just go back to work. Get your job done. <laughs> it, it's like uh, it's like there's a gravity pull when you talk about the word imagination. It just just goes right out the room. It's like no, nope, we want to do analysis. Analysis is still our default. We're a lot. It's a lot harder to go into the imagination state. I think because we don't know how to see ROI in it. We're still afraid we're wasting time. And I think until we get a lot of muscle memory, I think I do think there's an optimized an optimized way to do the work. But right now we don't we don't really have a lot of place to practice it. We 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 need the space and the time to be able to practice it, but only yeah. certain organizations. So I guess there's, that begs a question: Is that it seems like you were able to do it in your organization? I mean, do you have any advice for other people who are trying to do it in other well, organizations? Was the best yeah. way to move I mean, forward? I, right. So I think that's something that like we're all conscious of. I mean, I still think we're we're constantly figuring it out. I mean, you could hear me say, so saying, I would love more. I'd love to triple the amount of time they're able to like still ideate. But I do think it's um, having intention is step one and you know, really knowing what, having everyone align onto the same goals and just understanding their, it's, it's really a difference um, of the normal day-to-day -day work for most people. That, you hear that statement up front, but you don't really understand what it means until you experience it. I think there is an experiential side um, that the management systems need to understand in that each individual is going to react very differently to it. And so it's, it's a pacing effort, I think, um, and just being patient. I think that's a really hard thing probably at first for leaders is to know that it's going to take your people time, like maybe like way longer than you think it would, but that then they, once they get through a full round of like a full innovation cycle, which could take four or five months, they're going to move so much faster than next time. And that there's social capital for them, um, to have experience in this work because it's becoming such a, an important buzz, you know, it's a buzzword, but it's becoming so important for businesses to just even have full experience in it is very valuable. So I think by the, the second or third time, some of your sta staff goes through it, they're able to operate so much faster. And that's where I think some of the management research we see around the type of output teams can get. It's usually maybe those teams that are, you know, have a little bit more under experience under their belt they're going to be able to handle some of that more the bigger KPIs. But I think it's creating a bit of space for that early group, no matter what age they are in their careers, to, to get that learning process down 
And then I think you can put, then you can put a little bit more pressure in terms of their expectations and output. Um, and then listen to them and like, listen to what their, what their needs are. Each team's going to have their own unique needs. They might need some wild things that you wouldn't expect, like go fly, fly them across country to do a retreat in the woods somewhere. And they're, they're going to do work, but also maybe do some outdoor activities as a part, you know, and, and some of that really, that's just as important work, uh, investment as is actually the whiteboarding and coming up with the strategy itself. Wow. It sounds to me that you really need someone in senior in the senior management to to champion this right because oh, in some yeah. organizations i know of it's like they'd never allow that have the patience to do that sort of thing i mean that's key right really? to have an executive oh, sponsor it's, it's not even just one senior management it's really because the scene that senior manager is sponsoring has to go to the other senior managers to say hey this is the end output of it so it's really for us we have to go to the president <laughs> and then that leadership team <laughs> a lot of them we bought in and then there's a world where you really talk about this work so much where it's like yeah do you do you all even want to have a little taste of what innovation is like and i actually think it could be a great idea we, we do something called voc voice to the customer where you know we're interviewing their customers we're learning about what their customers need their frictions and getting a you know an l1 leader to to listen in on those calls and see how people synthesize the materials after it's great it's 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 getting people still exposed to that core core um work um, but I think without that buy-in from senior leadership, I don't think anyone's ever going to understand the magnitude of the work that is being, you know, projected for, for that team. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I uh, love yeah, your yeah, input. And I'm glad. Let's see if we can figure out how to do architecture, get some homes out there. I, hey, I'm, I'd love this. I know some architecture <laughs> startups trying to cut in here. So, but no, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much. So um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, right now, probably LinkedIn. LinkedIn's my primary way. So I think okay. I'll probably put my link in there. Sounds good. Well, I'll set up your I'll set up in the show notes with your bio and links to your LinkedIn profile and your company name and all that good stuff. And right. we'll go from there. Thank you so Thanks much. So much. It's been great. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, take care. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye bye.